0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. I you to come with me, please, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, reading just verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come they were all with one accord in one place. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. I want to, tonight, to continue the theme that we have been on uh, for this past few Sundays regarding the Holy Spirit, the Comforter has come. And I want to draw your attention tonight to this word and this term Pentecost and Pentecostal. And I know that a lot of you know exactly what it means, I'm sure, I hope. Uh, Others are maybe not too sure. And if you were to be asked, say, in the workplace, or a neighbor just found, well, so-and-so goes to the Pentecostal church, well, what is that? What what is Pentecost? What is that? Because to the unbelievers, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a strange-sounding word. But for many believers, they're not exactly sure what it is either. And so... Some may say, well, it's a denomination. And there are Pentecostal denominations, but Pentecost is not a denomination. It really isn't. Uh, somebody else might say, or you might say, well, it's, it's, it's churches that, that they sing for a long time and they sing loud and they put up their hands and they speak in tongues. Uh, or other of you may say, well, it's, it's an emphasis that certain people and churches place on the Holy Spirit. Just the way our friends the Baptists would have an emphasis on water baptism. Our friends the Presbyterians would have an emphasis on the Presbytery, the ruling elders. Our friends the Methodists. On methodology, John... Uh, uh, John Wesley. It's funny how names just go right out of your head at most inappropriate moment. And how he was a great advocate of, of methodology, of, of methodically reading your Bible and praying and your devotions and so forth. And, uh, uh, but what if they said? Well what, have they, well, what if you were to say also? Well, it was the day that the Holy Spirit fell on those disciples in that upper room in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit fell upon them and actually came into them and from that moment on they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But what if they said to you, well, why did that happen on that day? Why did that happen specifically on the day of Pentecost? What is it about this day of Pentecost? And so that brings us right back to the original question. What is Pentecost? What does Pentecostal mean? Well, in the Old Testament, God instituted all kinds of laws, rules, and regulations for the nation of Israel so that they could govern themselves fairly, righteously, and in accordance with God's holy standards. In order to do that, he gave them a moral law, the Ten Commandments, which is the moral law. But then he also gave them civil laws— And the civil laws was so that they could work with each other, they could live beside each other, and that they could treat each other well, uh, legally and morally and ethically and all the rest of it. And any country, any nation needs civil laws. If we didn't have civil laws, we would descend into chaos and anarchy. But then he also gave them ceremonial laws, and the ceremonial laws was to order their worship, because they just couldn't come any way they pleased to worship a holy God. And so there was, there was regulations and rituals and protocols that they had to go through. And there was a tabernacle, later a temple. There was a priesthood. There were sacrifices. There was animal sacrifices. There was all these things so that they could worship God in accordance to how he wanted them to worship him. And it was to show them the holiness of God and the power and the might of God. And so they had to be very circumspect in how they worshiped God. For instance, we know that only the high priest could go into the holiest of holies and only once a year. Nobody else could do that. And if they did, it would be on pain of death if they did that. <coughs> Excuse me. And you'll find much of the dealings and writings about that in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But then in Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 16, uh, God introduces uh, particular feasts, and these are called the seven feasts of Jehovah. And these seven feasts would take place over a period of several months in three different stages. And because the children of Israel, of course, were agricultural people at that time, particularly, then it would relate to their to their seasons of harvest times. And so, three times a year, these seven feasts would be over uh, from from about mid-April until about the 22nd of October. Over that whole period, there would be these seven feasts in three different settings, three different settings as it were. Well. Uh, the first three, which would be 14th, 15th, and 16th of April, would be called the Feast of Passover. And that included and that would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First And then there was a gap of seven weeks. And that gap of seven weeks then would bring us into June. And in that time and sometimes it was late May or early June, and at that time it was called the Feast of Pentecost. And those two were to do with the grain harvest, uh, the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And then there was a long gap of three months over the hot summer months, and that brings us to October, when there would be the Feast of Tabernacles. And included in this feast was the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, which was Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles proper. And the first two had to do with the grain harvest. The last three, the first three, I should say, had to do with the grain harvest. The last Three had to do with the of harvest and the grape harvest, the oil and the wine. And, of course, the middle one, which is what I want to focus on for a few moments tonight, is the Feast of Pentecost. By the way, in all of these seven feasts, there three of them were called solemn feasts. And that meant that all the males in Israel had to go up to Jerusalem and had to go and worship at the temple and had to participate in these feasts. That was the command. <coughs> Excuse me. Now the feast of Pentecost, sometimes called the feast of weeks, because it was a period over, there was a gap of a period of seven weeks from Passover to Pentecost. So seven sevens is forty-nine, and the next day would be fifty. And so in the Greek language, Pente is fifty, and Pentecost day is fiftieth. Uh, Penta is five, by the way, you know that. The five pointed star is a pentagram. That great military headquarters in America is the pentagon. It's the five sided place uh, where the army is stationed there. Uh, and so, in the Greek, pente and Pentecost and Pentecostal is the 50th day after Passover. And the 50th day after Passover, the barley grain would have been planted. Uh, and the first fruits would have come up, uh, you know, the harvest had come in, and so the priest then, he would go out and he would harvest some of that, and he would bring it in before the Lord, and he would wave it before the Lord as a wave offering, as a token that the whole harvest belonged to him and that the harvest would come in. (coughs) Now, 50 days later then, uh, and I'm saying the 6th of June, because the Hebrews doesn't work to the Solar calendar, they worked to lunar calendar. That's why Easter, by the way, is a movable feast. You know, our, our <laughs> you know, whenever they have Passover, it's a different time each year because they go by the lunar calendar. Uh, and Easter, of course, we attach that to Passover, and that's why it's a movable feast for us too. And so say 50 days later, say on the 6th of June, uh, when the wheat harvest would come in, uh, that was called the day of Pentecost. And on that day... The priest wouldn't wave two or three sheaves of grain. But on that day, he would wave two loaves before the Lord. And again, as a token of the whole harvest that has come in, and the whole harvest belonged to God. So that was a token to acknowledge God as the Lord of the harvest. So what is the significance of the two loaves? Well, During the Feast of first spruce, the priest would go out, as I said, he would get sheaves and he'd wave them before the Lord. He would bind them together. They'd be bound together and he would wave those before the Lord. But in this particular feast, uh, the Feast of uh, Pentecost, it would be two loaves. So it wouldn't be grains bound together, it would be grains baked together. Are you still with me? These would be grains baked together. And this has a prophetic significance, which I'll show you just in a moment or two. Now, the day of Pentecost had two important meanings uh, for the Jews. First of all, it was a day to remember God's giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. Fifty days after the original Passover in Egypt, remember when the lamb was slain, the blood was put in the doorposts and lentils, and the death angel passed over those who was under the blood of the lamb? Well, 50 days after that, they wandered in the wilderness, and they come to Mount Sinai, and that's when God gives them the law. So this is a reminder of the law, to rejoice that God had given them a law, uh, which was tremendous, the law given to Moses. But it's also a day to thank God for the grain harvest, the fullness of the grain harvest that come in. Now imagine, it's seen in Jerusalem some 1,500 years after those original feasts were instituted way back in the Old Testament. And so, these seven feasts were both historic and prophetic. Historic for them, prophetic for us. Jesus had been dead, crucified, dead, buried, rose again, appeared to his disciples for the next 40 days, you know, kind of interspersed in days. And then, on the 40th day, he gathered them together, and he gave them instruction before he ascended into heaven. What did he tell them? He says, to go into Jerusalem and wait in the upper room until you be endued with power from on high. Now, he never mentioned Pentecost. He didn't say exactly how long they were going to be there other than not many days from now, he said. All right? So, how long were they there? 10 days. 40 days. And 10 days is 50 when the day of Pentecost, the 50th day, had fully come, what happened? The Holy Spirit came and fell upon them in a mighty, mighty way. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And I can't say this for 100% sure, but can you imagine at the moment when that priest was waving those two loaves over in the temple? Can you imagine that that's maybe, we can't say for you, maybe that was the exact moment whenever the Holy Ghost fell upon them. And he came as a mighty rushing wind. Well, that must have been a shock to the whole city because all of those are worshippers over the temple. And you remember there'd be hundreds of thousands of people all praising God, all praying out loud. And the priests, the silver trumpets would be blown. There'd be such a, a whole rejoicing over the temple. And suddenly, suddenly this mighty sound from heaven came like a mighty tornado and it would stop them in their tracks. It was louder than what they were playing and saying. It would stop them in their tracks, and they wonder, What is this? What is this noise? And they would look around, and they would look up, and they'd wonder what's happening. And then they would follow the sound, and they would rush over to the sound where the upper room was, where the disciples were. Amen. And, and perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps maybe they'd seen little bits of fire. And they What is this? What's happening? What's going on here? And then Peter comes out, and Peter tells them, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. Hallelujah. This is the Holy Spirit, and he's come, and he's come upon us, and he fell upon them. And Peter went out, as you know, and he preached to them, and 3,000 got saved at that very moment. And then later, 5,000. And then later, all Jerusalem was filled with their doctrine. And suddenly there's a great, powerful revival going on in Jerusalem. All because the Holy Spirit filled. And that harvest time for the church had happened. It was harvest time for the church. And it's still harvest time. And in nations all over the world, the harvest is still coming in. Now, you wouldn't think it in Western Europe. But if you go to all our nations... You'll see there's a great harvest. Christianity is still the biggest, fastest growing religion in the world today. Still. And the harvest is still coming in. Now, those 120 in the upper room, they were grains that were bound together, they were bound together with a common cause. All of them had known the Lord. All of them, many of them had walked personally with the Lord, but all of them had known the Lord. There was a common call in their life. They had a common encounter with Christ. They all knew him as Lord and Savior. But now that the Holy Spirit came upon them, they weren't just bound together, they were baked together. They had become one in Christ. And you see, we as believers in the family of God today, we're not just bound together in a common cause, although we have a common cause, but we're baked together. We are supernaturally, mystically one in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. And so that's what was happening on the day of Pentecost. Something of the supernatural power of God fell upon them And it meant that they were baked together as one body in Christ. So the two loaves now became one loaf, as it were. No, I got ahead of myself. I'll tell you about that second loaf in a minute or two. Because the other loaf is important. So what about the two loaves? You see, it took a while for the early church to understand and to grasp this. Because as far as they were concerned, this was only for the Jew. It was wonderful news. It was a great gospel, but it was only for the Jews. Now, Jesus had given them some indications that it was for more than the Jews, particularly when he had touched the lives of the Samaritan woman and how that whole village came out and got saved. And so there was, there was indications that it was more than just for them, but they weren't getting that. As far as they were concerned, this is just for the Jews only. They'd got it on their plants. But Ten years later... Peter, he's at the house of Simon the Tanner, and he's lying up on the roof. And he doesn't know that back in Caesarea, a Roman centurion called Cornelius, who was a man who greatly admired Judaism and who gave alms and helped to build things and was very kindly disposed towards the Jews. And an angel came to him and said, God recognizes what you're doing as good Now, here's what you need to do. You need to send for Peter, who's at Simon the Tanner's house, down at the seashore, send for him, and he'll come, and he'll tell you what you need to do. He'll talk to you. And so he sent two of his servants and one of his trusted soldiers, and the three of them made their way to the house of Simon the Tanner. Now, about midday... Simon or Peter he's up on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house he's feeling hungry they're making some food down below so he puts his head back just to rest and suddenly he has a vision he has a vision of this big sheet coming down and it's full of all kinds of of creepy crawlies and and animals that for a Jew they were not allowed there wasn't kosher they couldn't eat it and the Lord says arise Peter slay and eat and he says not so Lord he says, I, I couldn't eat anything as common as that. He says, I couldn't do that. Three times that happened. Arise, Peter, slay and eat. That's so, Lord, I can't do that. The Lord rebuked him and says, that which I have cleansed, don't you call common. And then suddenly, knock comes to the door, these three men, And says, we're here to meet with Peter. And God spoke to Peter and says, you go with them, nothing doubting, don't doubt, this is of me, don't doubt. So he went with them, you read that in Acts 10, he went with them and he got to the the home of Cornelius, Cornelius explained what happened and said, the angel said, I'm to send for you, you're to speak to us. (coughs) And so he recognized that God was moving. Because for Peter to go into a Gentile home, for any Jew to go into a Gentile home was off limits, they just would not do this. But God had spoken and God had given a vision, and he realized it was God, so he started to share Christ with them. And you can read his sermon, and halfway through his sermon, what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on them. Peter says, As on us at the beginning, because we heard them speak with tongues and glorify God, too, just the same that happened to us in that upper room. And so, here is the Gentile Pentecost, here's the second loaf, and now the two loaves are one in Christ. Amen. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, bond or slave. All are one in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so we see here in Romans 3:29 and 30, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Paul writes again in Galatians 3:26 to 28. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave or free, there's neither male nor female, all you are one in Christ Jesus. God. And so Pentecost was an important event. For the Jew, it was historic. For us, it was prophetic and symbolic. But now it's reality for us. Because the Holy Spirit came on that day. Wait until that particular day, at that particular moment, because that was harvest time. And God wanted to show us the Holy Spirit has come for a harvest of precious souls all over the world to present to Christ as his bride one day. Amen. Mm -hmm. (coughs) Excuse me. Now. Jesus in John 14 and John 16, and we have read this in this short series, where he, at least on two occasions, told them that the Holy Spirit was going to come, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit, the Father was going to send him, that the Holy Spirit was going to come. That was a promise, that the Holy Spirit would come. So Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come. When he would go, (laughs) excuse me, when he would go, the Holy Spirit would come. Now, with that in mind, come with me, please. We're almost through in a moment. Come with me to uh, Ephesians chapter (coughs) 1. Ephesians chapter (coughs) 1. Excuse me, excuse my coughing. I'm trying my hardest not to, but it's not easy. Ephesians chapter (coughs) 1. Excuse me. Look at verse 13. In whom you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. By the way, just before I, I just highlight something here. You understand that uh, this letter of Paul to the Ephesians is one of the greatest letters in the entire Bible. It really is. Uh, I, I love Ephesians... I have read it a thousand times. I have underlined every Bible I have. It's underlined, scribbled all over the place. It's just full of stuff that's just precious. Paul's prayers. You need to read them and think about them and even pray them. Put your name in there. What he prayed for them. This is what the prayer for us too. So wonderful. By the way, verses three uh, down to verse six is the work of the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accept in the beloved. So that's the work of the Father. Verse 7 down to verse 11, verse 12 is the work of the Son. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. There's the second time that phrase is mentioned. And then, of course... We just read the work of the Holy Spirit. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In him also, having believed, you received with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Third time it says, to the praise of his glory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to the praise of his glory, each of them. We are born again of God's Spirit. Hallelujah. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all had a part in our wonderful salvation. The Father planned it. The Son procured it. The Holy Spirit produced it. And we have been the recipients of it. Glory to God. Now, it says we have been sealed. Paul's audience and Peter's audience, too, would fully understand what sealed meant. In everyday life, if you went to the market and you went to purchase some things, or you maybe put a down payment in something and you had to come back for it, you sealed it. And that sealed, it could be tied some way, or it could be maybe sealing wax, where you put your signet ring, your identification on it, so they would know that's yours, that's for you, you're coming back for that, it's sealed, it belongs to you, you're coming back for that. That's what the seal is. Now, God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And that's the guarantee that he's coming back for us, that Christ is coming back for us. (coughs) In fact, (laughs) the word guarantee is Arab bond. Arab bond means a pledge or earnest money, Uh, like a down payment, if you will. If you go to do any conveyance with the state agents and properties, Uh, there's earnest money that you put down. There's like a deposit, a pledge to say that you're going to fulfill that. You're going to do that. Well, it's true that Christ at Calvary, that he purchased us, that he paid the full price for us. But in this sense, the Holy Spirit is sending us because our redemption is not just quite complete yet. Did you know? Because our body still awaits our redemption. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. If you care to remind yourself about that. For we know that the whole, verse 22, we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. You see, our bodies are weak, and as we get older, they get weaker, and we take sick, and we get colds and flus and serious illnesses. We do all of that there. We physically have not the energy levels we have when we're 20, whenever you're 70. Because why? Because decay has set in. Because our bodies are decaying, and one day they'll go into the dust. But... When you have the Holy Spirit, that's the guarantee that your body will be redeemed, that he will give you a new body, like unto his glorious body, a resurrection body that will never, ever die, that will always ever be full of energy and life. Whenever Lazarus died and Jesus resurrected him, at some point in life, we don't know when, he died again physically. But when we die... We will rise in the resurrection and we'll have a resurrection body that will never, ever die. We'll never be sick. We'll never be ill. We will just be in perfect, continuous health throughout all eternity. Glory Amen. to God. We'll be bursting with energy. You'll jump. If you go to bed, I don't know whether you do in heaven or not, but if you do, you'll jump out of bed in the morning. You <laughs> don't jump out of bed in the morning now. Sure we don't. Huh? You jump into bed, not out of bed. But the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that. That's God's pledge to you. God's saying, I promised you, I pledged you. And to prove that, I put my Holy Spirit in you. And that's proving that Jesus is going to come back for you. And he's going to give you a new body, like on his glorious body. And you'll live with me throughout all eternity. Amen. Isn't it wonderful what the Lord does? <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to cut this short because... We're intensely these Sunday nights trying to keep it a little bit shorter. Arabon means a pledge, earnest money. But in modern Greek, arabona means an engagement ring. So, young man, like Paul, wherever he is, where is he hiding? There he is there. There is the rascal there. A young man like Paul has fallen in love with Ruth. And Ruth with him. And at some point, both of them realized this is a real thing. I found her. I found him. This is the person I want to spend the rest of my life together with. And everybody says, Ah. Oh. And so he probably, I don't know, I hope I am not putting my foot in it here. (laughs) He probably did the gentlemanly thing and went to... John Francis and said, Can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? He did that? (laughs) Well, good, actually, I'm glad. (laughs) And then produced the engagement ring. And what that engagement ring is saying... What he said to Ruth is, Ruth, this is a promise of greater things to come. This is my pledge to you, that I will marry you, and we'll have greater days. We'll have a whole future together. We'll be lovely and wonderful. Oh, yes, we'll have our words now and again, but everybody (laughs) does. But apart from that, it's wonderful. And so that engagement ring signifies that, that there's more to come, there's better to come, there's greater to come. And the Holy Spirit in our lives is kind of like that engagement ring. God said, listen, no matter how good things are here right now, there's more to come, there's better to come, there's greater to come. The best is ahead of you. Your best days, not now, your best days are ever going to be in the future. No matter how good your best day is right now on this earth, it will peel an insignificance to what it's going to be in the future, and the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that. That's the promise of God, it's the guarantee. So the believer cannot lose. We can't lose. Everything's going to be better for us. All eternity will be better than we could ever imagine. Can you imagine the moment when you'll set eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the moment you'll enter into the gates of heaven? John, uh, writing in Revelation, he he could only write in the language of appearance because he'd never seen anything like it. There There was nothing to describe the gold he saw. He says it's like transparent gold in the streets. He couldn't describe it. He was almost... Don't find it to try to describe this. The Apostle Paul, when he was caught up into the third heaven, he says, I couldn't even tell you about it. It would be unlawful for me to tell you. So what did they see? (sighs) All of that is ahead for us, and more than we could ever, ever imagine. Glory to God. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that all of that is ahead of you. Glory to God. And so the day of Pentecost changed everything. Everything has changed from that day onwards. And now we have free entrance into the very presence of Almighty God. Glory to God. And now we are filled with the third person of the divine Godhead lives inside of us. Your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. And best of all, One day we'll have a whole new body to be able to contain all the glory that God's going to put on us and and give to us in the the glory. And we'll see Christ in all of his effulgent glory. We're going to see him face to face. Glory to God. Let's pray. (coughs) Excuse me. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, as we saw these past few weeks that you promised you would not leave us comfortless. You wouldn't leave us like orphans without fathers and mothers, but you would be our Father, that the Holy Spirit would be our guide, that the Holy Spirit would be the one who would infill us and give us strength and give us power to live this Christian life and to be the sons and daughters of Almighty God that we're meant to be. So we give you thanks tonight for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your spirit residing. And we thank you that as we go on in our Christian life that our understanding of the Holy Spirit's ministry will increase and that we'll be able to begin to grasp just how wonderful he is and how gracious you are to give him to us to lead us and guide us in this earthly life. And so we praise you and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.